You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Let's face it. We are living in a world where, for a lot of us, there seem to be fewer and fewer things that bring joy and fewer and fewer things that are capable of lifting our spirits. Imagine, though, if you found yourself in a situation that brought you joy, expectation, and so much love that it couldn't do anything other than brighten your day and your life. Now, imagine if you were to have that very thing quite literally taken away from you by someone that you knew and someone that you trusted. For many people, one of the things that can bring that level of joy into your life is the birth of a new baby. And for Reagan Simmons Hancock, her second pregnancy was exactly that, the center of her world and a source of great joy. However, on the flip side of that coin, there are many women who sadly cannot have children, and that can be a source of massive heartbreak and many awful days. Taylor Parker, however, took that sadness and that need to have a child about a million steps further than any normal or sane person would, and the effect of those steps would destroy so many lives. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 86 of Gone But Never Forgotten. Psychopathic lies lead to unnecessary deaths. The murder of Regan Simmons Hancock and Braxlin Sage Hancock. and welcome back to GBNF. Last week's case was something a little bit different that we have done from time to time, covering a specific area where mysterious true crime has taken place. The Bennington Triangle in Vermont is certainly an area in the United States where there are a lot of questions and a lot of mysterious disappearances and deaths and very little in the way of answers. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. This week, we're going to dive back into what I guess you would call typical true crime, but we're looking at a case in crimes that thankfully are not typical. This story is another one of those that of course leave you shaking your head and wondering what is wrong with the world around us. Listener discretion is advised double time in this case, as we will be covering the deaths of a very young woman and of a premature child with some details that may be hard to listen to for some of you goners. 
Reagan Simmons-Hancock was a 21-year-old woman who seemed to be working at achieving all of the things that a young person can want in life. She had a three-year-old daughter who was her world, and she was pregnant with her second child. She and her husband, Homer Hancock, had just been married on September 21st of 2019, and it seemed that the world was their oyster as they happily awaited the birth of their child. Reagan had a friend who she had recently started to get closer with named Taylor Parker, who was a 29-year-old mother of two. Taylor had recently become a bigger part of the lives of Reagan and Homer as she had taken the couple's photographs for their engagement pictures and at their wedding. Things, though, in Taylor's life had been changing over the past year. She started dating a new man, Wade Griffin, around the turn of the year to 2020. Having had two children back in 2015, she had made the decision to get a hysterectomy because she didn't want to have any more children. The problem, though, is that she had not told very many people about that decision, and one of the people that was in the dark about that surgery was Wade. It would appear that Wade mentioned somewhere along the way that he wanted to have children, and because of that, Taylor had moved into action. Seemingly, instead of talking to Wade about the fact that she was unable to have children, she decided to try and find another way to provide Wade what he wanted. Instead of being honest, she started to look for a surrogate mother to carry their child. Now, don't get me wrong, obviously there is nothing wrong with surrogacy, but the reality is that perhaps someone along the way should have told Wade that Taylor was unable of childbearing. It has been reported that Taylor offered up to $100,000 in her search for a surrogate, but came up ultimately empty. However, instead of owning up to the truth with her boyfriend, Taylor started to look down a much more sinister avenue. She started to look for a victim. Taylor started to join groups on social media. She started to go to stores and clinics in hopes of befriending someone who could provide her with a child in one way or another. Taylor went way above and beyond not telling the truth to Wade. She actually even wound up concocting an entire story in life that centered around the fact that she was pregnant. You heard that right. Taylor Parker pretended that she was pregnant. After the crimes that she committed, Taylor's phone calls were analyzed, and it was discovered, too, that she had call logs and geolocation that showed that she was searching for and even physically attending OBGYN clinics and maternity stores in the area. It was believed that that was twofold. First, she was trying to appear as a pregnant woman, and second, she was actively seeking a victim for the sinister things that she had planned. Taylor had even purchased a fake baby belly so that she would appear pregnant to anyone and everyone that she came into contact with. That, however, was sadly not the depths of her deceit. Taylor had started to post photos on social media and even pose for professional photos to chronicle her pregnancy. 
She even put together and threw an entire gender reveal party for friends and family to carry on her facade. Everything seemed to be progressing as far as everyone in Taylor's life seemed to see. She was showing a baby belly, they knew the gender of the baby, and I'm sure that Wade was thrilled that he was going to be a father. There was one major problem, though. There was no baby inside of Taylor's womb, and when the time came to give birth, there was going to be some problems. On September 16th, things blew up in Taylor's face as her ex-husband contacted Wade and told him that everything that Taylor was saying and doing was a complete and total lie. Odds are pretty good that one of the things that her ex-husband would have known and would have said was that he was aware that Taylor had gone in for a hysterectomy in 2015. This certainly would have lit the fire under Taylor's ass, and she realized that time was coming to act, and she still did not have a victim, and thus did not have a baby. Odds are pretty good that perhaps before that phone call happened, Taylor did not view her friend and her friend's pregnancy as the things that would she was going to sabotage, but certainly with a lack of options, one can imagine that this was when she realized that Reagan was the solution to all of her problems. On October 8th, Taylor would go to visit Reagan and Homer after they had dinner. Homer would later say at trial that he arrived home around 7.15 or 7.30 p.m. that night and had dinner with Reagan before Taylor showed up. He said that Taylor had showed up with a gift for the baby, the baby that Reagan had now carried for approximately 35 weeks. Homer said that Reagan and Taylor had stayed up talking late after he had gone to bed. The next morning, back at work, Homer would receive a text message from Reagan's phone that he said struck him as strange because the way that the text message was written did not reflect the way that Reagan usually texted. He then texted back, I love you, and did not receive a response. It wasn't ever proven, but it is entirely possible that that text exchange could have been from Taylor rather than Reagan because Taylor was at the house. One more time, I'm going to state that listener discretion is advised. The following gets a little graphic and is certainly not content that's for everyone. Later on in the morning, Homer would receive a call from a neighbor who said that their family dog was out in the yard and making a lot of noise, but that nobody was bringing the dog into the house. Homer would try to get in touch with Reagan at this point, but that was to no avail. And then, starting to panic, he started to call friends and family for fear that something was wrong. All that Homer knew was that Reagan was at home with her three-year-old daughter. Homer would finally get in touch with Reagan's mom, Jessica Brooke, who would head over to the house to check on Reagan and her granddaughter. Upon arriving at the home, Jessica would see a bloody handprint on the back door of the house, and when she went inside, she found her daughter face down on the floor and not moving. 911 would be immediately called at 10.18 a.m., and around noon after attending the scene, the local police would get in touch with the Texas Rangers to help with the case.
as officers attended the scene, they could not have been prepared for what they found. Officers entered the home and found Reagan's body as mentioned on the floor face down and there was blood everywhere. There was blood splattered on the walls, on the furniture, on the floor, on the appliances, and really everywhere. The scene from top to bottom was incredibly gruesome. Reagan's mom would notify the officers that Reagan was approximately 35 weeks pregnant and they would immediately call for EMS to attend the scene so that they could check the status of the baby. If you thought that this story was going to be difficult, it's about to get infinitely worse. When investigators turned Reagan's body over to examine it, they realized that there was no longer a child inside of her body because she had been cut open and the child had been removed from Reagan's body. With that gruesome finding in their minds, investigators started to reconstruct the crime scene to try and figure out what had happened. It was deemed that the murder and whatever had happened before was not quick at all. The scene showed that Reagan, and what would later be found to be Taylor, had struggled for a long time and throughout the house. Reagan had been stabbed in as many as five different parts of her body, and she had over 100 stab wounds to her body, with over 20 of those wounds being to her head alone. The stab wounds and deep incisions on her body were deemed to have been caused by a sharp-edged weapon, and they would later be shown to have been caused by a small scalpel that would eventually be found by the coroner lodged in her neck, and it was not found before because it was driven so deeply inside of Reagan's neck that it was not visible to the naked eye. Reagan also had defensive wounds that included bruises, scrapes, stab wounds, and cuts all over her hands and palms. One of her fingers had also been dislocated, and another finger was nearly severed off of her hand. Further to all of that, the autopsy would show that Reagan had skull fractures in five different places, and that she had been struck with the blunt and the clawed end of a hammer. A jar of pink and blue sand that was in a glass jar in the home from Reagan and Homer's wedding was also believed to have been used as a blunt force weapon. I want to take a minute to not gloss over the fact that the wounds were consistent with both ends of a hammer being used. We often think pretty clearly about the trauma that could be caused by the flat end of a hammer, but... If you think about the damage that the claw end of a hammer would do to a person's skull, that's horrifying. To have five fractures on an area as small as a skull is overkill and gruesome as hell in my mind. Not that everything else that goes along with this case doesn't fit under those headings as well. When Reagan's body was turned over, investigators were shocked to find that she had also been cut from hip to hip and her uterus had been ripped out of her body to provide access to the baby that was inside. Something that Taylor had prepared for before the attack and murder by watching multiple videos on C-sections and specifically C-sections done in pregnancies that were 35 weeks into term.
Taylor had very clearly decided who her victim was going to be and how she was going to cover up all of her lies. The final note on this attack is the fact that I want to reiterate this monster, Taylor Parker, did all of this while Reagan's three-year-old child was in the house. Who knows what she heard or saw that will affect her for the rest of her life. That fact makes this monster even more disgusting, if that's even possible. This was very obviously a woman who didn't see or care about anyone beyond herself and her need to cover up all of her pathological lies. While all of this investigation was ongoing, there was another situation going on. Even before Jessica arrived at the home, at roughly 9.37 a.m., a state trooper would pull over a vehicle that was driving erratically and recklessly down the road while speeding. This vehicle was pulled over in DeKalb, Texas. The driver of the vehicle was Taylor Parker. As the trooper approached the car, he heard the voice of a female who was on the line with 911. On the call, Taylor would say that she had a trooper behind her on the side of the road and that she needed an ambulance to escort her to Idabel, Oklahoma, because she had just given birth, and that was where her doctor was. As the trooper looked in the window to survey the situation, he saw the umbilical cord was still attached to the baby, and that the other end of the umbilical cord was tucked into Taylor's pants to make it look like she had been the one that gave birth to the baby. What I don't understand personally is Taylor's state of mind. Obviously, she, she was crazy. Obviously, there were some issues here. But to have thought this through as she seemingly had, and then to think that she could somehow go to the hospital and say that she had given birth, but then not be checked out at all, it seems pretty, like, pretty basic common sense to me that somebody was going to realize, and probably very quickly, that this woman had not given birth at all, and had a baby in her possession that was not hers. I suppose that may have been why she made the decision to cross state lines. Perhaps she believed that she could somehow get the baby looked at and get out of the hospital before news spread about what had happened to Reagan. It's just crazy to me. Just absolutely crazy, though. As one would suspect, it didn't take long for news to spread both ways. First, that there was a woman who arrived at the Oklahoma hospital with a newborn baby that sadly had passed away somewhere between Reagan's home and the hospital and the state trooper pulling Taylor over, and also for word to spread of a murder and a kidnapped baby in Texas. Everyone in the hospital was walking on eggshells because they needed to wait for proper law enforcement to show up at the hospital and they needed to somehow keep Taylor at the hospital long enough for that to happen. So everyone worked together to that end, seemingly knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that the deceased premature baby was one and the same with the premature baby that had been ripped from Reagan's womb. When a special agent arrived at the hospital and started to interview Taylor, the truth started to come out, although very skewed. 
Taylor said that she and Reagan had gotten into a fight, verbal and physical. And she said that Reagan was having blackouts and that Reagan didn't want her to leave the house. She said that she had removed the baby from Reagan's womb at Reagan's request with a scalpel. When she was told that the scalpel had been found inside of Reagan's neck, though, she said that she had no recollection of stabbing Reagan and that Reagan was still alive when she left the home. Obviously, she was placed under arrest and all of her lies started to fall apart quickly. Wade Griffin, Taylor's boyfriend, would say when he was interviewed that Taylor had told him that morning to meet her at the hospital after lunch so that they could be together when the baby was induced. All of these lies so that she could keep a man who she had been with for only 10 months. I cannot believe the lengths of crazy that some people will go to when they think that they're going to lose someone. Would it not be better to lose a significant other because of the truth rather than take lives and lose that person because they realize the depths of crazy that you are? Honestly, the lives that were ruined and ended just because this woman couldn't tell her boyfriend that she was unable to carry a child is mind-numbing. In court, Taylor would plead not guilty to the charges that were laid against her, and her court case would end up lasting for 25 days and included 142 people that were called to the witness stand. In their opening statement to the jury, the prosecution would say, quote, How did we get here? How did it get this far? She is an actress of the highest order. The lies and the fraud go on and on. The layers of fraud are staggering. You are going to have to understand the fraud to understand what happened on October 9th. This started months and months ahead of time until it passed the point of no return, and it ended up in homicide, unquote. Isn't that the truth? This woman chose to tell everyone that she was pregnant and have ultrasounds and show a baby bump and throw a gender reveal party before she even had a plan, whether evil or not, that would provide her with a baby. Most people are aware that a full term for a pregnancy starts around the 39-week mark. That combined with the fact that her ex-husband blew the whistle on her, on her lies, and set her into a string of bad decisions and crime that she could not stop because she needed to have a child, in the end, her bad decisions and her lies and the fact that she was a human being of the worst kind led to two deaths and a number of lives that were forever changed and forever damaged. The opening statement from the defense focused on one thing, quote, The law is the lens and filter you must view these facts through. Sometimes it's not black and white, but a shade of gray, unquote. I, I don't even know how to respond to that quote. I mean... I guess as the defense team, it's your job to try and prevent this monster from going to jail or getting the death penalty. But to even try to say that any part of what happened between Taylor and Reagan was shades of gray 
is completely asinine. This woman was a cold-blooded killer who took her time killing Reagan and inflicting an unbelievable amount of damage, and she ultimately caused young Braxlin Sage, which was the name that Reagan and Homer had chosen for their child, to pass away as well. Infuriating is what that defense is. Throughout the trial, the defense attorney, Jeff Harrelson, would try to say and prove that Braxlin was not alive when she was ripped from the womb. His reasons for trying to put that into the mind of the jury was because that act of kidnapping, if Braxlin was alive, is what turned the murder charge into a capital murder charge. And a capital murder charge is what could take the sentence from life in prison without parole to the death penalty. The prosecution, though, would remind the court that medical professionals who were far more qualified than the defense team had testified that Braxlin would certainly have had a heartbeat when she was taken from Reagan's womb. Thus, that child was very much alive. In the end, prosecutors would argue for the death penalty because they believed that Taylor was not capable of changing, while the defense argued that she should receive life in prison because they believed that she had traumatic issues in her past that had not been addressed and that she might be capable of changing if she was given proper help. The jury would only take about one hour to find Taylor Parker guilty of capital murder in the deaths of Reagan Michelle Simmons and Braxlin Sage Simmons. The jury would then take only one hour and 15 minutes to decide to sentence her to death instead of life without parole. They determined that Taylor was likely to continue committing acts of violence that posed a threat to society, and they also found that there were no mitigating circumstances in her life that should lead to her getting a lighter sentence of life in prison. During family impact statements, Reagan's mom would say, quote, She was one of the very few people on this earth who cared about you. Now, who cares about you? My baby was alive and still fighting for her babies when you tore her open and ripped her baby from her stomach, unquote. Reagan's sister, Emily Simmons, said, quote, My only biological sister. You need to understand what you took from me and my family. No more celebrating her birthday. I was barely 19 when I got the call that my sister was gone. She will never be my maid of honor. And if I visit my sister, I have to go to a graveyard and see a headstone. I will never get a text or phone call from her again." Unquote. After the verdicts and sentencing were done, Reagan's mom would say, quote, We are just so thankful that justice has been served today for not only our family, but our friends, the prosecution team, and our community, unquote. Reagan's sister would say, quote, I'm overwhelmed with happiness it's over, because Parker has been such a burden in our life for so long now that I haven't been able to think about my sister without thinking about her, unquote. After sentencing on November 9th of 2022, 
Taylor Parker was slated to be moved to the Mountain View unit in Gatesville, Texas, where the state houses its female death row inmates. She is, of course, entitled to appeal her sentence. She became the seventh woman in Texas on death row. To end this episode, I want to take a moment to think of all of the lives that were affected by the actions of this monster who was intent on one thing, keeping her boyfriend. First and foremost, of course, there are the lives of Regan and Braxlin that were taken on that day. Regan was just getting her life together at the young age of 21, and poor Braxlin was not given the slightest chance of experiencing life because of the way that her life was disregarded. There is Jessica, Regan's mom, who came to do a welfare check on her daughter and will never recover from what she found inside of that home, much less what she would have felt when she was told that her granddaughter had been ripped out of Regan's womb. There is, of course, Regan's sister and the rest of the family and Regan's friends who will never recover from all of this and the trial and everything else that comes with being the family of a victim of a murder. As we've talked about in the past, things never end for a family of a murder victim. There will undoubtedly be appeals and phone calls and harassment that will never end constantly reminding them of everything that happened to their young family member and friend. There are, of course, the first responders. People called out to a home with no idea of what they were walking into and what kind of scene was before them. I don't think that any amount of training can ever prepare you for what they walked into on that day. For all of the flack that people all over seem to give to officers, investigators, and first responders, myself included at times, they deserve the utmost respect for doing what amounts to a nearly thankless job, and one that not only puts them into the line of fire every day, but also tests the limits of what they're able to handle on any given call. There's also the jury people who were called upon to do their civic duty and that had to see, hear, and experience things that civilians hope they never need to encounter, and they had to decide themselves whether the monster that was responsible needed to also be destroyed. That is a difficult job, and one that the, a jury of our peers did effectively and correctly, but will never forget. And imagine being weighed. Imagine being a man who believed that he was about to be a father and on his way to meet with his girlfriend for one of the most beautiful things in life, childbirth, only to find out all of this carnage that was caused by the person that he loved. Heartbreak everywhere that you look in this story. I want to end this episode of a true crime podcast by strangely giving relationship advice. If you're in any kind of relationship, communication is key. Be open. Be honest. And don't set, don't set yourself down a road of endless lies like Taylor Parker did. If you don't suffer from mental health issues and you venture down this road, you will suffer from mental health issues. One cannot live with the guilt. One cannot live with the voices inside of their head 
and the constant second-guessing that lying of any kind starts within our lives. This certainly did not need to happen. If you are, for example, incapable of providing what your significant other wants and needs out of life, maybe they just aren't the person for you. No relationship is worth a single life or a single crime being committed. Let me know on our socials about what this case makes you feel, and let's chat. Chatting helps all of us, I think. It helps us to process, and it helps us to get things out that sometimes don't come out. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and the show can also be emailed at any time. Or come over to Patreon. It's free to chat on the Patreon page, and you can also help the show out if you feel so inclined by becoming an official patron of GBNF. Until next week, then, be better, hug the ones that you love, be truthful, and of course, be better. I'll see you all back here next week.